often at this point I read the scripture before I get into preaching it. Today I'm going to be reading it as a part of the service. So we'll be dealing specifically with 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 28 and that will come up a little bit later in the service. As we turn our hearts to God's word, let's look to him briefly once more in prayer. Father, open our eyes and our ears to receive what you have for us in your word today. Speak to us through these ancient words written down by the Apostle Paul, but inspired by your Holy Spirit. And again, we pray, work in us what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's this ongoing conversation about the nature of truth in our society today. It's been going on for a long time. I remember reading books by Francis Schaeffer way back in the late 1960s. I was two when I first read them. Um, Reading books by Schaeffer in the 60s and 70s where Francis Schaeffer would talk about how all true truth is God's truth. And that was an important distinction that he was making. He was saying, yes, if it's true truth, it's God's truth. If it's just my truth, then maybe not so much. And more recently, there was an interview with Oprah Winfrey and Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And I'm sure you've heard or seen at least some of the scuttlebutt that's gone on on the internet about this interview. But at one point in the interview, um, Meghan Markle made the comment, I'm just telling you what's happened. I'm sorry if I've shocked you, it's been a lot. And after that, Oprah came back with a question. How do you feel about the palace hearing you speak your truth today? It might have been better had she said your interpretation of the truth or something along those lines, but it's very common for us to speak in those terms these days. We don't think of truth as something that's out there that we need to seek for and find, we often think of truth as just however we might perceive certain facts or things about the world in which we live, how we feel about them more often than not. And think about that question. How do you feel about the palace hearing you speak your truth today? Because it sort of encapsulates this conversation that our society is having. I said it's been going on for a very long time. It has, but way before the 1960s when Jesus was being interviewed by Pontius Pilate, to put it mildly, on Good Friday, almost 2,000 years ago, Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And if we had time, we could explore all of the gospel references where Jesus said that he came to bear witness to the Father, to God. And those are parallel to what he's saying here. When he says, I came to bear witness to the truth, he's saying, I came to bear witness to this eternal reality, the living God, who is the creator of heaven and earth. Jesus said, I came to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now on that occasion, Jesus did not give Pilate an answer. The course of events had been set. 
Jesus had been delivered into Pilate's hands with the foreknowledge of God the Father so that he would be crucified and he would give himself for us and for our salvation. There was no point carrying that conversation much, far, much farther, but on the evening before that trial, before Pilate, speaking to his disciples in answer to a question from Thomas, Jesus did answer that question, what is truth? Jesus said to him, I am the way. It's one of those great I am's in the Gospel of John where Jesus actually, in the way that he structures his language, just says, by the way, I am God. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which brings us back on this Easter Sunday morning to an idea that was raised a couple of weeks ago when we began dealing with the gospel. When we're proclaiming this good message of Christ, we are not just proclaiming our truth, in contrast to someone else's truth or religious story, nor are we communicating a set of propositions in the abstract, as if we're saying, just memorize these 12 points and make sure you know them well, there will be a quiz after class tomorrow. Rather, we are communicating the truths of the gospel in order to bring people to the truth of the gospel we are communicating the truths of the gospel in order to bring people to Jesus Christ, who in a very real sense is the gospel. If we draw back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, we see, we've already addressed this. The Apostle Paul wrote, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless... You believed in vain. Now here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus took the penalty that was rightly ours upon himself. He paid the price that we could never pay. He died for our sins. This is the truth of God's word. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The same scriptures that tell us that Christ died for our sins. Tell us that Christ was raised for our justification. Maybe more importantly in the times in which we live. The same scriptures that tell us Christ arose are the scriptures who tell us that Christ died for our sins, that he paid the penalty that was due to us. Because there are a lot of people apparently in the world today who are saying much the same thing that they were saying in 1, Thessalonians, or in 1 Corinthians 15, that there is no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. But there are a lot of others who are saying, well, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Isn't that great? That's, you know, we see it in the springtime. Outside, we walk out and there's little crocuses poking up through the dirt. Things We see it in these natural events. That's not the point. 
He was given over to death. He bore the penalty for us and for our salvation according to the scriptures and according to those same scriptures. God raised him up as a seal of that finished atoning work of Christ so that we could know that our sins have been paid for. Paul went on in 1 Corinthians 15 detailing some of the eyewitness testimony to the resurrection by the apostles and others who encountered Jesus after his resurrection from the dead. And he briefly defended his own apostleship as one who was included in that number of people who had borne witness to the risen Christ. And he wrapped all that up in verse 11, saying, whether then it was I or they, whether it was me, the Apostle Paul, or any of the other 11 who were still out there, or some of these other brothers who bore witness to the risen Christ, it doesn't matter. So we preach. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And so you believed. He was raised up, according to the scriptures. Like he had been saying, there it is. There's the message that if you have believed it has brought you to Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But the proclamation of that truth and the proclamation of the person to whom it leads was every bit as problematic in those days and maybe the days themselves but from where we are today, but, but we have this tendency to think that, that it must have been simpler then, that people were more superstitious, that they were more gullible, they didn't have science, that it was easy for Paul to go around and say, well, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, according to the scriptures, and people would just believe him. But the truth is that even in those days, and even in this same letter to the Corinthians, Paul declared... Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So even in those simpler times, there were those and, and the vast majority of people who did not find faith in this truth to be easy. There were Jews like the Sadducees who did not believe in life after death. Some evidence that we have indicates they didn't believe in much of anything supernatural. They may not have even believed in God as anything much more than just sort of a vague concept. It's a very, very familiar religion to many people these days. And to some, like the Gentile philosophers at Athens, the concept of resurrection was so odd that when Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection, as we have it translated in English, Jesus and Anastasis in Greek, the people who heard him thought that he was preaching two separate gods, or maybe a god and a goddess, Jesus and Anastasis. And this is what prompted the question that Paul asks in verse 12. Remember, he's writing to the church at Corinth. And he asked them, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And it seems like this was more than just a hypothetical conversation. Evidently, some in the church were saying this very thing. Maybe influence from the Sadducees 
on some of those Jews who had come out of the synagogue and been converted and joined the church. And Corinth, if you look at a map, was just down the road from Athens. When Paul left Athens, when he left the Oropagus on Mars Hill, he went on down the road to Corinth. So whatever was trending among the philosophers at Athens certainly must have influenced the people at Corinth. And there seems to have been at least some in the church who thought it was possible for Christianity to be this wonderful way for us to understand the world in which we live and to understand ourselves completely without reference to the world to come. No matter where that influence had come from, they had a Sadduceical idea that religion in general could have value for the here and now, really didn't matter which religion or how you held it, it could have value for the here and now, even if the whole enterprise rested on a false foundation. And I want you to notice the argument was not merely that Christ had not been raised. The argument was stated as, there is no resurrection of the dead. Not for Jesus, and not for anyone else either. There's some remarkable interviews, debates that were done with the atheist Richard Dawkins and others where he argues Jesus could not have been raised from the dead. And they ask him, well, how do you know that Jesus could not have been raised from the dead? And he says, because no one rises from the dead. And they come back to him and say, except for Jesus, and actually a few others that we know about from Scripture. And he says, no, you're wrong. Jesus could not have risen from the dead. Well, why not? Because no one rises from the dead. Which is why Paul said, according to the Scriptures, but he also included that list of eyewitnesses. He wants us to know. He wants us to be sure. There is a resurrection from the dead and that resurrection has been sealed and certified by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So people at Corinth were saying, there's just no resurrection. Now it's not that Greeks didn't believe in the afterlife, they certainly did. They believed in some kind of life after death. They believed that after death the spirit went to Hades, it went to the underworld, and it would remain there in the abode of the dead forever. They believed in the afterlife. They just didn't believe in what I hope is a very familiar reference. They did not believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, which has been the confession of Orthodox Christianity from the beginning. So I don't have notes on this, but I want to make clear the view of the Greeks was not that different than the view of a lot of people who call themselves Christians today. People who say, well, I believe that when I die, I will go to heaven to live as a spirit in the presence of the Lord forever. Now, there's an element of truth in that. To be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord, and that is a spiritual reality. But the hope of a spiritual heaven is not the hope of the church of Jesus Christ. 
There's never been a time in the history of the church when people stood together to confess their faith and said, I believe in the, the resurrection of the spirit and heaven when I die. We say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, which is a whole different thing. So we have to be careful that we don't slag the Greeks too much for their sort of strange proto-Gnostic idea that what gets raised is just the spirit that goes to some spiritual afterlife when there are many people in the world today who believe much the same thing. There are also many people in the world today who don't believe in the resurrection at all. I remember having a conversation years ago about the time that I was reading those books by Francis Schaeffer with a woman who happened to be my boss at the time. And she told me that she was a very spiritual person. And she believed that religion and even Christianity could be a very valuable thing for what it could teach us about ourselves and about how we ought to treat others but not for what it taught about salvation and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. There's a kind of so-called Christianity out there that says that. It doesn't even matter if Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't even matter if there is a resurrection of the dead. Jesus was a great guy, and he taught some great things. And if we would just follow what Jesus said, wouldn't the world be a better place? Well, it probably would. The problem is we can't, apart from God's renewing, regenerating grace, we cannot follow the things that Jesus said. And having received God's renewing and regenerating grace, we have also received the hope of resurrection and the life everlasting. And even our text this morning tells us that this version of so-called Christianity is not an option. And here I just want to let Paul's arguments speak for themselves because this is the truth about the Christian understanding of the resurrection if we believe that God's word is truth. Verses 12 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there is no such thing as resurrection generally, then Christ has not been raised. The New Testament does not want us to come along and think that God did something super special when he raised Jesus up that he's not prepared to do for every person who is found in Christ. If physical resurrection is an impossibility, if God cannot bring us out of the tomb, then Christ, who was fully human in his incarnation, has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, the word there is empty, useless, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, there is truly no point to any of this. There is no point to worship. There is no point to prayer. There is no point to the preaching of the word. There is no point to baptism or the Lord's Supper. 
if Christ has not been raised. These things are a sham, and our preaching is empty, and your faith is empty. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, Paul says, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, we already made the point, our, our preaching is useless and empty, and so is your faith. Well, now he takes it another step. Your faith is futile if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Not only that, but you are still in your sins. Somebody comes along and tells you Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher. Just read the Sermon on the Mount and do it, and everything will be okay. Don't believe them. This faith of ours comes to us as a package, as a unit, as I shared with you last Lord's Day from pastor and author John Piper. What makes all the events of Good Friday and Easter and all the promises they secure good news is that they lead us to God. And it is God himself who will satisfy our souls forever. God is the gospel. In other words, there's simply no version of Christianity that's about good morals and good manners. Someone who tries to proclaim some version of Jesus as a true good moral teacher that just overlooks the fact that he happened to say on several occasions that he was God, which would make him, as C.S. Lewis once pointed out, either a liar or a complete nut job, is preaching something contrary to the scriptures. Anybody who teaches Jesus as a good moral teacher in a way that does not include his death for our sins and his physical resurrection for our justification is in fact not preaching the gospel. They are misrepresenting God because apart from the resurrection of Christ and all that is included in that truth, all that Christianity really has to teach us about ourselves is simply that we are in Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 2, without hope and without God. Christianity that says Jesus was never raised, you don't need him as Savior, you don't have to follow him as Lord, but he had some great things to say, just leaves us in the position of people who are not able to do the good that we know. Further, Paul says, not only is your faith futile and you are still in your sins, but those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They are just gone. They are dead. They are no more. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then we don't need to stand at gravesides and talk about people have gone to a better place. If Christ has not been raised, they haven't. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, Paul says. Because if our faith is for this life only, it is pointless and worthless. It is a house of sand at the edge of the water with the inevitable tide of death rolling in to wash it away. And that being the case, Paul says, we who have lived and proclaimed this lie are of all people most to be pitied. As truly we would be if that's where the chapter ended 
But praise the Lord, that is not. And I want to just carry on and wrap this up again by letting Scripture speak for itself. So verses 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So all that argument in those verses that we just looked at, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain, your faith is vain, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, and those who have died in Christ are just dead and gone, and we may as well forget about them. If that was true, that Christ has not been raised from the dead, then all those other things would be true as well. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We started off that way this morning. I said, Christ is risen. And you responded, he is risen indeed. And the alleluia that we say at the beginning or at the end of that call to worship is because since Christ has been raised from the dead, none of those horrible things that we considered are actually true. And in fact, there are some really amazing things because Christ is just the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus has been raised from the dead, but a day is coming when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout in the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus' resurrection is just the first fruits of the resurrection of all of God's people. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those who have been incorporated into Christ by grace through faith. They will be raised up then at his coming. And I want you to notice how this ties in with our series on the book of Revelation. Because having proclaimed this amazing truth, Paul goes on to say, Then, when Christ returns in glory and the dead are raised, then comes the end. And what does that look like? Pandemonium, doomsday, end of the world, zombie apocalypse stuff? No. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He doesn't reign after all of his enemies have been put under his feet. He must reign until they have been. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But here's the thing. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, Christ, Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So what's coming at the end of time is not 
Ragnarok. It's, it's not that Norse idea of the world failing in blood and, and destruction and all of these horrible things happening. What's coming at the end of time is when Jesus raises all of his people, all of his faithful ones from the dead. And then he turns to the Father and he says, there it is. You sent the first Adam into the world to have dominion. He failed, I have not. Jesus will not fail, Christ shall have dominion. And when he does, he will turn the whole thing back over to the Father that God may be all in all. So we preach and so you believed. Because this is not my truth. And this is not even our truth as the church of Jesus Christ in some sense. This is the truth about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the faith of the apostles and the faith of the church. And so I would invite you to stand with me and we will join our voices with that church of Jesus Christ wherever it is gathered in the name of the Lord to worship him. And we will confess our faith this morning in the ancient words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. <laughs>